patriots. This is Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. Bringing you insight from outside the mainstream, I am your host, Ryan. Today we talk about the raid on Mar-a-Lago. I have an absurd statement from Nancy Pelosi, a warning about our military readiness, and we'll finish up with a new constitutional conversation next on Living with Liberty. The GOP leadership actually have the stones to finally stand up to the Democrats. In December of 2020, I did a show about how the Democrats always overstep their bounds of authority when they hold both houses and the presidency. And once again, we've seen it on full display since Inauguration Day 2021. They have trampled constitutional rights. The FBI and DOJ are rogue bureaucracies that continually try to punish and silence political opposition. And some on the left are finally waking up to the fact that they may be the next ones on the DOJ hit list. There's been raids on Trump associates from the administration. There's been raids on journalists who continue to expose the rampant corruption of the U.S. government. And... Of all those instances, there was nary a peep from Republican leadership about how the FBI and DOJ were targeting certain individuals and groups. It was the ACLU of all groups that were one of the most vocal in their opposition to the Project Veritas raid, but there really hasn't been much of anything from McConnell and company. The raid of Mar-a-Lago was unprecedented in nature. A former president, a now private citizen, had their home raided by the FBI. So you would think that would be enough to get Turtle McConnell and his band of merry rhinos to poke their heads out and make an immediate statement, right? Wrong. It took McConnell about 24 hours to issue a statement. And after that 24 hours, the best he could muster was this. The country deserves a thorough and immediate explanation of what led to the events of Monday. Attorney General Garland and the Department of Justice should already have provided answers to the American people and must do so immediately. Well, thanks, Mitch. Thanks for the strong statement and the support of of our Constitution and our rights. So I'll ask it again. 
Does the GOP leadership have the stones to do what it takes to stand up to the Democrats and their continual overreach? Or will it be another dog and pony show from them? Will it be uh, just pomp and circumstance and, hey, look, look, we're trying to do something, but uh, the Democrats won't let us or whatever. Whatever excuse the Republicans give every time they meet a little resistance, especially from, from the, the, the leadership who, who very clearly have no real like for Trump. I'll say this. If they don't show a strong response, especially when the Republicans retake Congress as expected, just this disaster of a Biden administration and the continual overreach of Democrats makes that, I will say, a near certainty. We cannot rest on our laurels, but it makes it a near certainty Stay motivated, get out and vote in November. If the GOP does not show a strong response, then they risk becoming irrelevant. Conservatives are sick of the fecklessness of the GOP, and the patriot wing of the party is about to re- uh, ready to take our conservative vote and voice elsewhere. We are tired of the Republican Party thinking they have the, the right to the conservative vote. They don't. They need to show up. They need to do something. They need to be stronger. There's many good ones out there in the party. Uh, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Josh Hawley, uh, Rand Paul, Ron Johnson, among others. We don't have time to list them all. But there are far too few of them. For too long now, the Republicans continue to think they have the right to the conservative vote without actually exhibiting conservative values once they get in offense, once they take majorities. They throw all that out the window and and do whatever they want, do whatever is going to please their corporate overlords who are really more in the Democrats' pockets than theirs. That all needs to change. What we are witnessing with the Democrat Party is, I believe, a party that's in its death throes, that they are doing everything they can right now to cling to power. To They've uh, shown us their authoritarian tendencies, their authoritarian ways. They've showed us who they are. And what we're seeing is a party that has been in decline and is, is in the death throes of what we have known of the, the, the modern Democratic Party. And if the GOP doesn't take the hint of what's going on now. The, like I said, the Patriot Wing, the real conservatives, taking their vote and doing other things with it or just not voting, they're going to be the next ones that become irrelevant. The, this Turtle McConnell leadership, it needs to go. Now, next week, I am going to have a special guest on the show, and we're going to do a deep dive discussion into several issues around Uh, the state of and the direction of the Republican Party. So there's a teaser for next week's show. Stay tuned for that. All right, let's get back to the Trump raid. What did this raid accomplish? And actually, let's back up a a little bit more than that, because what has the Democrats' preoccupation since taking the two houses of the legislature and the presidency, what has the Democrats' preoccupation with Trump accomplished for them? It's kept him in the limelight. It's done nothing for them. It's kept him in the limelight. It's kept him top of mind for many 
on all sides. Good and bad, right? There's, there's good and bad to it, but it's kept his name out there. It's shown that the Democrats have no interest in the people and our country. Their only interest is in political revenge. They don't give a crap about the United States of America. The only thing they're interested in is their special interests overseas, their laundromats over in the Ukraine and wherever else we send billions in aid for stupid things. That's their only interest. Their interest isn't the American people. It's not our country. They are purposely trying to destroy it. So it's th- this preoccupation with Trump and the MAGA movement shows that they have no interest in our country. Their only interest is political gain and political revenge. And let's be real here for a second about all this. Anyone that is being intellectually honest, if you're being honest with yourself, the Trump message about the stolen election was getting stale. It was getting stale. People were getting tired of it. Many states where the GOP have the governing trifecta have passed legislation making it easier to vote and harder to cheat. They've, they've see, they saw what happened in 2020, found the loopholes, found the gaps, and passed legislation to uh, rectify that. Now, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't continue to be proactive in that but that's been taken care of. States where there's, let's say, a Republican legislature and a Democrat governor like Wisconsin here, at least were able to get bills passed through the legislatures, but of course they're vetoed by the governor. Now, that's not to say, what I'm not saying here, is that Trump's influence is waning in any way, shape, or form, because as we've seen throughout primary season here, the Trump endorsement is strong. But the overall message at a national level is starting to get tuned out, was starting to get tuned out, because the states have started to take action. And that's where it has to take action. Trump being uh, kind of per- keeping on with this, this narrative of a stolen election gets people to tune out, makes people mad. They're tired of hearing about it because their state legislatures are taking care of it as they should, or they're working locally to take care of it. So it's under control. Let's push forward. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. So let's do that. I'm not saying that, again, his influence is waning in any way. It's the message that was starting to get stale and tuned out, and it was not going to be something that swayed independents or even moderates, let's say moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats. It wasn't going to sway them in 2024 if they weren't leaning Trump. Now, if you don't like that take, send me an email and tell me about it, ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Send me an email, tell me about it, tell me how much you hate that take. But I'm going to ask that you do this. You better include data that shows where stolen election is a top five issue nationally right now. That it's a top five issue that people are talking about on a national level, not a state level, because you can go through and find all kinds of issues at the state level that people are talking about election integrity where it belongs. So show me a national poll where the top five issues include stolen election or election integrity from a national perspective. And then try and then tell me that people are, aren't tuning it out. Then if you can find that poll for me, that's, that's the ask here because I'm telling you 
We have to think bigger and broader in elections. Stolen elections is not going to win a national election. Now, with this raid on Mar-a-Lago by an obviously politicized and weaponized DOJ, Trump has been handed a new message, a fresh message, one that will resonate with a broader group of people, both right and left, freedom lovers on both sides of the aisle. And that that group that this will resonate with understands that if the FBI and DOJ are able to go after a former president, one that was, oh, by the way, uh, cooperating with this, whatever it was with these, these presidential records, he was cooperating this whole time. If the FBI and DOJ are going to go after and be able to go after a former president, they certainly will not hesitate to go after a flyover country deplorable who is thinking wrong thoughts and doing the wrong things and voting the wrong way. That is the message that is sent here. That is the message that Trump needs to go forward with and rally people, uh, rally people together with. Trump now has a message that can rally those on all, both sides of the aisle those who value independence, who value freedom and liberty, no matter what their party affiliation may be. They handed Trump the keys to that kingdom here. If their whole goal was to keep him from running again, they failed miserably with this raid on Mar-a-Lago. They've been failing miserably with the January 6th committee that's turned up nothing. Mar-a-Lago gave Trump a new message, one that people will not tire with of because it comes down to freedom and liberty, and people will always choose freedom and liberty. Now, this whole Mar-a-Lago raid has those on the left speaking out as well. Those that understand that eventually this type of tyranny will come for them at some point. They are now voicing their concern on the raid on Trump's home. I saw Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, of all people, voicing concern over this. I've seen left-leaning outlets like uh, Politico voicing uh, uh, outrage, not outrage, I guess is the wrong word, but but um, opinions and concerns over this. And the other thing this does now is it pretty much will guarantee that Trump is the GOP nominee in 2024 whenever he officially declares he is running. Now, that's not just my opinion. There are Republican strategists out there basically throwing in the towel. There's Republican strategists out there that know this raid on Mar-a-Lago basically cements Trump as the candidate in 2024 should he choose to run. Now, Republican strategist John Thomas, who was, who is, I should say, not was, I think he still actively is, but is organizing a PAC to support Ron DeSantis, should he want to run in 2024, said this about it. We can hang it up. It couldn't be clearer, Thomas said. If Trump wants it at this point, I don't see how it's not his. It'll be a coronation at this point, not a primary. So even Republican strategists especially the anti-Trump ones, are really mad. They're big mad over this raid on on Mar-a-Lago. They saw their opening. They saw the stale message. But now, forget it. Freedom and liberty is under attack. A former president in an unprecedented uh, turn of events here was 
raided by a weaponized and political DOJ and FBI. There's no way that if Trump doesn't want it at this point, that it's not his. The whole point of the January 6th committee, their whole rehash of old information was to keep Trump from running. They found nothing. There was no new evidence. The evidence that they presented was easily refuted. So now Merrick Garland and the FBI try to take matters into their own hands. And they try, to, and well, they didn't try, they did. They raided Trump's residence. And now that backfires. The nation's even more upset over this. There's more people that see the tyranny. Uh, they're the, you know, we're, that we're staring down the barrel of tyranny here. And it, it gives Trump a new message to move forward with. It's shocked our nation, not only our nation, but it's shocked the international community as well. They are asking, what's going on in the United States? How did it become a police state? And to top it off, the raid has made Trump more popular. It's reinvigorated his base. It's reinvigorated those who might not have been considering it before, but see that, oh, well, this is wrong. And he did fight for freedom and liberty when he was in office as the president. It's, it's made him more popular, so much so that Republican strategists are publicly throwing in the towel on 2024 already. And we're not even in to, to the midterms yet. The Democrats keep digging their hole deeper and deeper. It's frustrating to see all that's going on right now. It is. But our best bet now is to not get in the way of an adversary that is making a colossal mistake. They're going to keep doing this. They're going to keep pressing and pushing and pulling levers or attempting to pull levers up until the midterms, up until Inauguration Day 2023, when the new House representatives and hopefully new senators that tip the scales back into the GOP's favor take office, and then we can turn the tables on these Democrats and, and start investigating them. Because th that's the punishment. The, the process is the punishment here. And the Democrats need to be made to feel that, to understand that we are not, from a conservative standpoint, messing around with them anymore. Living with Liberty now has show clips uh, on Rumble. We have a show clips channel on Rumble. The show clips are perfect for sharing with friends and family or just for a quick uh, reference of a topic that we covered on the show. Head to the Living with Liberty show clips channel and hit the subscribe button. The more subscriptions we have, the more the channel gets into the recommendations made by Rumble. Okay, moving on. Nancy Pelosi must have tied a really good one on in Taiwan. Apparently, she forgot to see Dr. Jill for one of Joe's speedies before going on NBC and making this statement. Take a listen. We still support the one China policy. We go there to acknowledge the status quo is what our policy is. There was nothing disruptive about that. It was only about saying China is one of the freest societies in the world. Don't but, take it from me. That's from Freedom House. Let's it's talk a, a little bit. democracy, yeah. courageous people. And, and it's it just, I don't know why it is, uh, except there's some commercial interests who would like to diminish uh, the relationship. Now, what did I miss here? Was I sleeping? Was I in a coma? What did I miss? China's a strong democracy now. When did that happen? Did China all of a sudden stop locking everything down whenever there's a case of COVID that's discovered, that's reported there? 
Is there now free and fair elections where there's an opposition party that the people can choose from, uh, you know, that's uh, against the CCP? Did they stop putting Uyghurs in slave labor camps? Did they stop persecuting uh, religions? Have they suddenly allowed freedom of speech and religion? What alternate universe did Nancy go visit here? I'm wondering. China is is a a, a strong democracy and a free a free nation. Are you kidding me? Now here's the deal with this. This is just a pure backpedal. She sent his White House puppet some talking points to give to Nancy. That's what this is here. China's not a strong democracy. It's it's an authoritarian, dictatorial government still. And, and, that, and the fact is that this administration has sent constant mixed signals on the one China policy. So this was a backpedal to try and calm the tensions of, of Nancy's visit, plain and simple. That's all this, this is. China's a free country and China's a strong democracy. That is what this is. It's Chinese propaganda. Nancy went ahead with her trip anyway after being warned not to by the military she went ahead because we have such a weak and feckless executive branch of our government that's not going to stop anything. They couldn't even stop a tumbleweed from blowing past them with a, a calm breeze. I mean, so Nancy went ahead. She was told not to. It caused some saber rattling on the mainland. And now, and now our regime here is trying to do damage control so that whatever blackmail file China has on Joe stays hidden. That's what this is about. It's not going to calm tensions anymore. China is getting increasingly aggressive towards Taiwan. They're using Nancy's visit as cover for it at this point. But she sent Joe some talking points to give to Nancy so she could go on TV and make these stupid claims. China still abuses human rights. It still persecutes religious expression outside of that, uh, of devotion to the state. And it still censors anything counter to what the official CCP propaganda line is. Now, speaking of China, they could shut down our ability to produce new military weaponry tomorrow if they wanted to. I don't think anybody realizes how, uh, how much of a precarious situation our, our defense uh, supply chain is in right now. China has the market cornered on mining of rare earth metals. They have the market cornered on the production of electronic components and electronics. Both of these things are critical to the production of military equipment, weaponry, everything that goes into our our military readiness. They have the market cornered on this stuff. I have an article here titled, The U.S. National Defense Supply Chain is in Crisis by George Whittier and uh, Ben Bordelone. In it, Whittier and Bordelone note that the U.S. has become much too dependent on overseas suppliers for our supply of parts, materials, and minerals that go into uh, our our, uh, defense equipment. Not only are U.S. defense contractors subject to the same supply disruptions and delays as the private sector. So even when stuff's coming in, the defense contractors are subject to the same same delays at the port, same delays on the rail, same uh, undercapacity or overcapacity, excuse me, in the trucking market, 
making deliveries late for production. So we can't get missiles and planes and, and guns and whatever else out because, you know, they're, they're subject to the same delays everybody else is. Not only are they subject to those, they're also the overly dependent on foreign suppliers of parts and materials, especially those that are made in China. Again, the rare earth metals, the electronics, those are two huge things made in China. And our defense uh, contractors are heavily reliant on those. This leaves our country and, more importantly, our soldiers vulnerable. As in a number of cases, we, as a country, do not have the scale needed domestically to produce these key, uh, these key parts and materials to supply our military in the event of a major conflict, or any conflict for that matter at this point. We all know how broken supply chains are right now. We don't have the scale in this country to, to ramp up and quickly supply uh, our soldiers, what they need to keep us free, to keep our shores safe. And in some cases, we don't have the capability at all in this country. Now, we've got 60-plus percent of the, the market uh, coming of semiconductor chips coming from Taiwan. They have 60% of the market, 60-plus percent. What happens if China invades Taiwan and cuts our supply of chips? Intel isn't ready. We have Samsung building more plants. Uh, here in the United States, but they're not ready. What happens if, if, if Taiwan's invaded? Well, there goes our, our, our supply. You know what? If Taiwan's invaded. What happens? Screw city. That's what happens. We're done. How are we going to, to keep pumping out military equipment? It's easy pickings at that point. Now, it sure would be nice if our schools taught actual history, not the made-up fairy tales about what an awful country this is, not these fairy tales like the 1619 Project, because if we taught actual history, people would know that the U.S. did this same exact thing to Japan in 1940. The U.S. cut off the supply of oil and scrap metal to Japan as World War II was breaking out because Japan was resource light. They had to import this stuff. They didn't have their own natural resource uh, natural resources to make things like steel. They didn't. They don't have oil resources there. So those we cut off those items. Items that Japan needed to keep their war machine going. We cut them off at the beginning of 1940. That's what triggered Japan to attack us. That was the last straw. They probably would have anyway, but we cut them off, and that that was the last straw. So. We need to learn from history. We did the same thing to Japan, and now China is in a position to do the same thing to us. Government is in place to protect our rights, first and foremost, to, to, to protect our rights. It's not to grant us rights. It's to protect those rights that are naturally given to us by our Creator. And according to the Constitution, government has the authority and duty to provide for national defense. That's pretty hard when military components needed to finish missiles, planes, tanks, guns, uh, whatever other military equipment soldiers need in the field. It's hard to provide for national defense when key components for those things are made overseas. The DOD has dropped the ball here, as have our representatives, when it comes to evaluating where parts are made that go into 
the readiness of our national defense. There must be an evaluative process that says, hey, that's a key industry to our defense capabilities. We better do something to keep it here on our shores. We better not outsource that. But do you think our our reps think like that, though? Hell no, they don't. They're too busy schmoozing with the globalists and the defense contractors for more campaign money. They don't think about these things. They don't think and take a look and say, oh, uh, yeah, we shouldn't be getting them those components from uh, uh, our, our basically our global adversary here. That could be really bad. We must have full control over the supply chain of our military equipment. That is one industry that we as a nation should be doing everything we can to make sure the supply chain is reliable and it is secure and it is within our control. We need more Congress people standing up to sound the alarm on this. And then, not only that, we need them to actually go do something. And we as people, as a, as a population, we the people need to do something as well. And we need to be writing our Congress people to say, you need to do something about this. We need to get this going. We need our defense supply chain contained within our borders. We need these key industries that supply our, our military and provide for their readiness. We need those back on our shores. The honest truth is we are already years behind China on this. They have us over a barrel on this at this point. If we don't start now, if we don't change course now, we will end up cut off from the key materials. We need to ensure, ensure that our shores are defended just like we did to Japan at the start of World War II. If you are listening to the audio-only show and your platform allows for reviews, please give us a five-star rating. It helps others find the show. Whether you are listening to the audio version or are viewing on Rumble or YouTube, please hit the Rumble or Thumbs Up button. No matter the platform, be sure to hit that subscribe button. The more subscriptions we have, the more the show gets into the recommendations made by the various platforms and the more we are able to spread the truth. All right, finishing up today, it's time for another constitutional conversation. Today, we will tackle the myth that the U.S. has three co-equal branches of government. Spoiler alert, we don't. If our government operated under the originalist intent of the Constitution, not the Woodrow Wilson bastardized version... The three branches would not be viewed nor, in essence, operate as co-equal branches. Part of the problem has been that our legislators, in their zealousness to be reelected, have punted much of their responsibility to the bureaucracy so they don't have to face the music on tough decisions, on tough votes. Part of the problem has been that We've had an unchallenged usurpation of power by the executive branch. And another part of the problem has been activists on the judicial bench. And you know what? We the people have taken our eye off the ball, too. We're not uh, absolved of any accountability here. We haven't done our jobs holding, uh, holding our government accountable to that originalist intent of the Constitution. And then to top it all off, you throw in the lack of decent civics education, and you have a recipe for people thinking we have co-equal branches of government. This myth perpetuates, 
the narrative goes on that, and we get politicians that can spout it off on TV without any consequence that we have three co-equal branches of government. Now, one needs to look no further than the actual, just the construction of the Constitution itself to see we do not have three co-equal branches of government. Article 1, authorizing the legislature, outlining what the legislature is to be, has 10 sections to it, and it is 2,268 words. Article 2, authorizing the executive branch, is four sections, 1,015 words. And Article 3, which authorizes the Supreme Court, is three sections, 374 words. That's it. This breakdown tells you we do not have three co-equal branches of government, that one is clearly more important than the other two, and that they are in, uh, call it in order of importance, if you will, with the legislative branch, the executive branch being next, and then the judicial being the least important of the three. If Congress wanted to tomorrow, they could reduce the Supreme Court down to Chief Justice John Roberts, and that's it. They're the ones that actually authorize the Supreme Court. That, that's how unimportant the court itself is. is it, it, can't even, it doesn't even organize itself. That comes from Congress. So all this shows we do not have three co-equal branches of government and that the fact that Congress authorizes a lot of this, uh, the, the Supreme Court for one here is that example, shows who... Which branch has the most power and which one is not like the others? Now, our founding papas knew that the legislative branch was the most important. And Madison wrote about it in Federalist 51 when he said this, In Republican government, the legislative authority necessarily predominates. The remedy for this inconvenience is to divide the legislature into different branches. So what is he saying here? Yes, that the legislative branch is is important. It's the one that's closest to the people. But not only is it the most important, but it is so critical to our form of government that it has two branches. We have divided the branches of the legislature into two pieces, not only so that because of importance, but because it's a check and balance on each other so you don't end up with mob rule. Now, we went cover the 17th Amendment in the previous constitutional conversation on how that's kind of wrecked this idea of a check and balance within our legislative branch. But the idea being there, we have two houses for a reason because it's such an important branch of government. It's the one that's closest to the people, and it needed a check and balance of its own, so we have two branches of it. It's the only one that has two branches. There aren't two branches of the executive Uh, executive branch of government, nor the judicial branch of government. They are single uh, entities because they're not as important. They're not as equal to the legislative branch. And then to further this point, there are the amount of powers that are listed for each branch that show they are not co-equal branches of government. The legislative branch has 18 listed powers in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. The executive branch has six listed powers in Article 2, Section 2. And, oh, by the way, two of those powers, the executive branch needs the advice and consent of the Senate to fully 
uh, realize and enact and execute those two powers they have, which are to make treaties and nominations. So even two powers the executive branch holds still need legislative approval by the Senate. That doesn't sound too co-equal to me, does it? And then there's the judicial branch, which has all of four powers listed in Article 3, Section 2, which you could probably guess by now, none of them give them the authority to make laws. So it is complete nonsense to think that we have co-equal branches of government. It's complete nonsense to even say that we have co-equal branches of government. We don't. Possibly the biggest ruse that have been that has been perpetrated on the people, perhaps there's others, but perhaps in this instance, the biggest ruse is that the Supreme Court settles law. Now that impl- implies that they make law or that what they say is final on the law. They do no such thing. They don't settle law. Their function, we bought into that lie, but their function is to look at current law, look at laws that have been passed through the legislative process that are being challenged, and then decide what its constitutionality is. They decide the law uh, in, in relation to what the Constitution says. That is the function of the judicial branch of the Supreme Court. Legislators and activist groups for decades now have taken bills that they couldn't get through the normal process to the Supreme Court for a decision. And activists on the bench generally oblige them and say, uh, yeah, this is good. It's constitutional, even though it's the flimsiest of arguments and in essence are creating law and people treat that as settled law. It's not. A lot of times they kick it back to the, the, the lower courts for the decision, say, nope, it's, this is not uh, constitutional, which is probably the right process. That's what they should be doing. But they don't. They, they themselves, Supreme Court usurps that power that actually should go to the lower courts and says, oh, basically, yeah, this is a law. The law settled on it. Now we've seen now with this, this court and how it's comprised now, going more towards that originalist intent. They're ruling more in line with what the Constitution says and what it should be, which is good. It's kicking things to the states that should be states' decisions. It, it, we have to keep that, uh, that mindset going, that, that just because the Supreme Court says something doesn't mean it's settled. We have to look at it through the lens of, is, is this really just judicial activism here. Everything that, that's gone on with the legislators and activist groups taking bills or whatever to the Supreme Court for decisions, it's duped us into thinking that the Supreme Court is the final arbiter of law and that we must oblige it, that we must say okay and accept it and that's it and that's wrong. That is wrong. Their function is, their only function is, to look at the Constitution, look at the law, Look at the Constitution under originalist intent, I should say. Look at a law and determine whether that law fits within the framework of the Constitution as in terms of being applicable as a federal law. If not, if there's no uh, d- kind of distinct uh, enumerated power, if you will, for that law in the Constitution, it should be kicked back to the states, and the states can decide what they do with it. It shouldn't be the Supreme Court saying, yep, this sounds good, and then now it's federal law. No. It's got to be looked at, is there actually a place in the Constitution 
that says abortion is the only example that comes to mind that says abortion is a federal right and law protected by the Constitution. No, it does not say that. And it gets kicked back to the states under the the 10th Amendment like it should. It's not a a law or not a right specifically reserved for the federal government to protect. It goes to the states and the states decide what they want to do. That's what we need to do here. That's how the, the, the judicial branch is set up. The bureaucracy should be whittled down to the four that are spelled out in the Constitution, and the powers that the legislators punted to those bureaucracies need to be put back in the people's hands, in our representatives' hands. No more of this washing their hands uh, and saying, well, that you know, we can vote on it because that's the EPA's or the FDA's or what insert three-letter agency here's decision. No, we do not hire. We, the people, do not hire bureaucrats. We hire representatives through elections to represent our interests. We didn't hire them to punt those, those powers to a, bureau, a bureaucratic agency. We hired them to speak on our behalf in terms of the federal government. So the, the, the bureaucracy needs to be whittled down to the four that are in the Constitution that are specifically called out in the Constitution. And if we want an EPA or a CDC or an FDA, then that's a constitutional amendment. And that has to go to the people to decide that we want that. Now, the, the bureaucracy, because of this bureaucracy, we've allowed the mediocres that we elect to Congress to get away with not making tough decisions. That way they cling to power way longer than they might have otherwise because they're not faced with a tough decision. They're not faced with too many decisions that are, that are make or break on their grip on power. And because of this, they're able to perpetuate the narrative of co-equal branches of government because the bureaucracy falls under, for the most part, the, the purview of the executive branch, again, with the advice and consent of the Senate, which is typically a rubber stamp if you have those two branches uh, of the same party. So it's, in essence, it's just a rubber stamp. There's The, the advice and consent part is, is kind of gone, for the most part, when you have... Um, when you have parties, uh, the same party that has uh, a hold on the Senate and the White House. But, but this whole kicking these, these powers to the bureaucracy is, has allowed these mediocres to cling to power because they can't do anything else. Get, get that. They don't, they're not successful people at anything else but ruining our lives, making bad decisions on our behalf, and not listening to our wishes and wills. It's allowed them to cling to power way longer than a lot of them should have. A lot of them should have, if they had to make tough decisions, they would have been out long ago. Now, the ability of the president to issue executive orders should be severely restricted. We've essentially gotten to the point where we think of the president, we hear he issues an executive order, and now we think, oh, well, we got to follow that. We're not a monarchy. Here again, we've got the three... Uh, the myth of the three co-equal branches causing people to think that because the, the president issued an order that it's a law. It's not. We have a republic, not a monarchy. Our laws, anything that we the people should be following, come from our elected legislators, not a dictatorial president, and not from the bureaucracy. Friends, we do not have co-equal branches of government. The legislative, a.k.a. the people's branch of government, is the most important branch because this is a government by the people, for the people, and the legislative branch is the one closest to the people because we elect those representatives from amongst ourselves. 
We've allowed this myth to gain traction and change our thinking over the years that each branch is equal to the other. So decrees from each, and that's what they are, decrees, especially from the executive and and judicial branch, must be given equal weight. We must follow them the same. No, we don't. The legislative branch makes our laws. The executive branch's function is to enforce those laws. And the judicial branch's function is to take a look at those laws against the backdrop of the Constitution to see if, in fact, the Constitution spells out that the federal government can hold that power that has been enacted through that law. The founders knew that the people's representatives needed to have the most power because they, in theory, were the ones closest to the people as they represent the various districts around this country. They come from among us. They live with us in our cities and towns and in rural areas. They knew that our representatives needed to have the most power, the, the biggest say in our government, and that it was going to be in order to enact the checks and balances they had to be split into two houses. And then they were to act as a check on the executive branch and the judicial branch acts as a check on the other two. When stuff gets through that, maybe it shouldn't. That's how it's set up. That's how it should go. That's how it should operate. We need to get back to this originalist intent by electing officials who are going to ensure each branch of government stays in its own sandbox. They've opened up the the... They tore down the fence between each one, and they play in each other's sandbox. And this is, and we, you know, start to think that we have three equal branches of government that we we have to listen and and oblige each equally. We don't. We have to get elected officials that understand we do not have three co-equal branches of government. We have to get them elected, and we have to press them to put the fences back up between the sandboxes and strip the powers from the other branches that don't have uh, that don't have a right to those powers. That's what we need to do. We that's how we kill the myth of three co-equal branches of government. Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for tuning in. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. There you'll find links to my past shows my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with knowledge in fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living with Liberty Outfitters. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show, should your listening platform allow. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family, as well as on your social media accounts. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. Follow me on Parlor. My handle is at livingwithliberty. You can also email me. The address is ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.